I'm Jesse. And I'm Lucas. And this is Double Blind. Each week, we pick apart a breaking scientific study. We try to put it in context by explaining exactly what happened and why it matters. So if you're curious, come with us. We think it'll be a lot of fun. This week on Double Blind, three of a kind, neutrinos win a Nobel Prize, and changing your mind how to win over the anti-vaxxers. All right, Lucas, why don't you start us off? Cool. Thanks, Jesse. So a few weeks ago on the podcast, we covered the Ig Nobel Awards. Yes. The sort of parody of the Nobel Prizes for scientific discoveries of questionable value. Right. And I thought because we talked about that, it would really only be fair to also put some <laughs> coverage towards the actual Nobel Awards. Okay. Um, the things that actually matter. And in Canada here, which is where we're recording double blind, yeah. there's been some coverage because a Canadian actually shared the Nobel Prize in physics this year. Hey, that's exciting. It's really exciting. Uh, he's a prof from Queen's University. Uh, his name is Arthur B. McDonald, and he was named the co-recipient of this year's prize in physics. And there have been a lot of, you know, stories in the Canadian press celebrating that this has happened, but I don't really think they've delved too much into what this guy has actually done. Okay. What him and, let's be clear, his large, large team of researchers have right. done. Because this is awarded to the whole group. He was the one named in it. Okay. In, in this one, it was him cool. personally named in it. Right. But, I mean, this is research that came out of a very large, large group. Okay. So, first of all, let's, let's talk a little bit about what he's done. Sure. So, he studies particles. And he studies these very particular particles called neutrinos. Ah, uh, yes. So, you've heard of neutrinos. Yeah. Do, do you know anything about neutrinos? Or? You know, we have a giant facility in Sudbury, isn't it? Where, yeah. we, where we research them and try to find them. So that's what won the Nobel Prize. Okay. He was in charge of the research happening there. Okay, and cool. that's, that's what's being awarded the prize. This okay. Year. So very good. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about those sort of facilities. Okay. And because they're really cool. Right. <laughs> so neutrinos are these super mysterious particles that are flying through space all the time, mm-hmm. but rarely interact with matter. Right, so they're just going everywhere all the time. They're just going everywhere. There are billions and billions of them traveling through your body every second. Oh, yeah. that sounds scary. <laughs> but they don't do any damage or anything. But remember, they rarely interact with matter. So right. this is not really something you need to worry about too much. Okay, so they're just super, super tiny. They're super tiny and they're also uncharged. Okay. Which is the key, uh, right? right? Because like usually when you think of particle things that interact with you, it's because, well, there's an electron there and it's flowing from point A to point B or it's... Right. Okay. That makes sense. It's taking electrons from you or giving them to you, something like that. Oxidization reduction okay. is those yeah, processes. Yeah. Neutrinos don't have any charge. Most of these neutrinos that are traveling through us right now mm-hmm. come from our friend the sun. Okay. Right? Which is constantly emitting neutrinos due to the nuclear reactions that are occurring within it. Sure. But there are also other sources. Cosmic rays, um, emit neutrinos, supernovas, uh, even nuclear reactors here on Earth emit oh, neutrinos. So interesting. There's, okay. there's loads of different sources. They were first theorized in the 30s, um, and they were theorized in order to conserve energy during beta decay, which is a type of radioactive decay. Okay, interesting. So you might have heard of beta decay where you have a proton, mm-hmm. which is a positively charged particle, and it becomes a neutron by emitting an electron. Mm-hmm. You also need to balance that. There also needs to be a neutrino coming out of that, too. You essentially violate conservation of energy if you don't have it. Okay, cool. But it wasn't actually measured until the 50s, 1956. And since then, sort of in the last half century, we've learned there are three types of neutrinos. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, cool. There are electron neutrinos. There are muon neutrinos. 
and there are tau neutrinos. Okay, what the heck? <laughs> so all you really need to know here is there's three different types of neutrinos. Okay. And each of these is capable of producing a charged particle, either an electron, a muon, or a tau, if it interacts with an electron. Okay, so what are muons and taus? So you can think of these as just particles that are very similar to electrons. Okay. They're all in this class called leptons together, the three of them. Right. Uh the differences are subtle. Okay. For this conversation, there's three different types of these. Okay, cool. Particles. It does sound like we're in Star Trek again. It really, really does. Just to summarize. Yes. Neutrinos. Yeah. They travel through everything. Yep. Nearly everything. Almost everything. <laughs> Except for rare cases. Okay. Um, they're really hard to detect. Sure. There are three types of them. Got it. Okay. So, I mean, that leads us to our next question is how do you detect something that rarely interacts with matter? Right. Because it's really hard to... St- Study something if you can't detect it using <laughs> all any of the tools you have. Right. Well, turns out what you do is you just need a lot of matter in a very controlled environment. Okay. To increase your probability of interacting with these and to know that when you've seen interaction, it is due to a neutrino. Okay. So that's where this whole thing that you mentioned in Sudbury comes in. Right. Right. So the way that scientists do this is they take huge, huge tanks of water. Sometimes it's normal water. Sometimes it's known as heavy water, which allows you to do slightly different reactions with it. You're making a confused face right heavy now. Heavy water is, heavy I know water, we've done this before. We've done this before, yeah. So it's uh, deuterium. So essentially there's an extra neutron in right. the hydrogen atoms in the water. Okay. Right? So, so the, just a, the hydrogen ice, has yeah. an extra neutral particle. Particle. Exactly. Got it. Okay. Um, so it's just an isotopically slightly different version okay. of water. So they fill these huge tanks of water. And they put them in old mine shafts deep beneath the earth. Oh, that's you know, what they use. Cool. Hundreds to thousands of meters below the surface of the earth. And this is wow. to isolate them from all this sort of interference from radiation you get from other sources. Okay. Right? The idea is hopefully, and of course nothing's perfect, there are minerals in the earth itself which are mm-hmm. decaying and releasing radiation. But they generally eliminate all sources of interference besides these neutrinos, which are traveling right through the earth. Right. So they don't care about the earth. Most other particles will hit stuff in the earth, except for the neutrinos because they're so darn tiny. Exactly. Okay, cool. Then you take this tank of water and you line the edges of it. You line the outside of it. Yep. With light sensors facing inwards. So cameras, basically. Pretty much cameras. Okay. So this is the really cool part is every time a neutrino interacts with an electron in the water yeah it creates a small burst of light <laughs> just, a, just a little tiny burst of light very very faint right so i don't know this is kind of this like romantic idea of there's this giant tank of water sitting in the dark crazy and then every now and then it's just a little burst of light which you can detect on the sensors that is incredible and so that's these neutrinos coming in and interacting with the electrons in the water so it's literally just put a ton of water in there so that yeah. there's more stuff for it to go through and it's more likely that it hits something. Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so how often does a neutrino come into contact with a with a water molecule? So, as an example, in Sudbury, uh, they've got about a thousand tons of water. <laughs> it's a lot of water. It's a lot of water. Okay. And they've got close to 10,000 light detectors. Sure. Okay. And they see about three a day. Oh my god. Yeah. So they're really infrequent. They're so. really, really infrequent. And remember, there are billions and billions of these traveling through your body every second. 
Holy. The interactions are super, super rare. That is incredible. That is really really incredible. Yeah. It's kind of like finding a needle in a haystack, right? It it very much is needle in a haystack. That is so cool. As I I mentioned briefly earlier, Mm -hmm. uh, this guy Arthur uh, was a co-recipient. Of this. Right. So the, the Sudbury group was a co-recipient of the Nobel Prize. Okay. The other recipient is in Japan. His name is Takaki Kajita. Okay. I sure hope I'm pronouncing that right. My apologies <laughs> to him if I'm not. And they have a similar uh, setup um, with a large tank oh, of cool. water. Right. But they're conducting slightly different experiments at each of these sites. Okay. okay? So the one in Japan is very specifically looking at neutrinos which come from cosmic rays which interact with our atmosphere okay cool okay so this remember there are three types of those neutrinos yep this produces the muon neutrino okay variety sure so they were looking at these in the late 90s yep and they noticed something really interesting which is that they've got this tank which is buried sure beneath the surface of the earth and neutrinos are hitting it from all sides uh-huh. because of course there's neutrinos traveling down from the surface Right, a couple kilometers to the surface. Mm -hmm. But there's also neutrinos traveling all the way through the Earth, through the core of the Earth and hitting it from the other side. Right. Because these things do not care about the Earth. Right? Right. And what they noticed is there were significantly more hitting them from the surface of the Earth that they were near than from the side that they were a long way away from. So they've got significantly more muon neutrinos being detected from the side of the tank that's closer to the atmosphere. Okay, yes. And the side of the tank that's further away. So we'll call it the surface side. The surface side, exactly. Right. So what they're seeing here is they're seeing that these neutrinos, which are created at the atmosphere, yep. if they travel a short distance, they'll detect a lot of them. But if they travel a long distance, they'll detect significantly less. Right, which is weird because they're being formed at the atmosphere at all, all parts the earth. of the earth exactly right. and they shouldn't really interact with the earth too much as they travel through it okay so what's going on so what's going on exactly so they concluded <laughs> that these neutrinos can actually change what type they are because remember they're only looking for the muon neutrinos okay they concluded that they can actually change what type they are from when they were created so if they've traveled over a longer path more of them have changed weird it's very weird so what type are they changing to well, one of the other types of neutrinos, the, so the, ele- the electron, electron or the, the uh, tau. tau. Okay. Yeah. Weird. So that was the first experiment. Okay. And the second experiment was the one that happened in Sudbury, Ontario. Uh-huh. Yes. Right. Okay. This is this is Arthur's tank. Yeah. Arthur's I'm, tank. I'm referring to him very <laughs> casually. Or Canada's tank. Or Canada's yeah. tank. Yeah. Sure. So these are looking at neutrinos from a different source. Okay. These are looking at neutrinos coming from the sun. Sure. Which is the vast majority of neutrinos that are traveling through your body right now. So now the sun only produces one type of neutrino. Okay. These are the electron neutrinos. Right. So that's what this detector in Sudbury is looking at. Sure. So so we're not looking at the muon neutrinos, which were created by uh, the cosmic rays hitting the atmosphere, mm-hmm. which Japan looked at. Yep. We're looking at electron neutrinos from the sun. Okay. Right? And the interesting thing is they noticed in this detector, they were only detecting about a third of the expected neutrinos. Okay. As electron neutrinos. Right? Because the sun emits only electron neutrinos. Okay. And they were detecting about a third of what would be expected. Okay, sure. So that's also kind of weird. Okay. And these two lines of evidence, Mm -hmm. which this year's Nobel Prize in Physics were given to, were these two lines of evidence that created this whole observation that neutrinos change their type between these three as they travel 
Okay. And the longer they travel, the closer you can get to that one third, one third, one third. Oh. Between the three of them. Interesting. So they seem to even out. They seem to even out. Exactly. Wacky. And I'll put some links to, to why that is. There's a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah. It's essentially this whole quantum wave idea. The idea that each of these types of neutrinos can be represented by a wave and the probability of seeing one type is determined by where on the wave you are. Essentially, each part of those waves gets out of sync as you get further and further from your source. It's wacky. It's completely wacky. So we're going to put some links to that. Okay, sure. But but that is the Nobel Prize in Physics this cool. year. It was given to that discovery, which has huge implications. One of the interesting implications, yeah. which sort of one thing led to another, it led to the fact that it was discovered neutrinos have mass, oh. which was not a given before uh, that discovery was made. Right. Yeah. And huh. that's, but once again, we're going to link to all sorts of information, which you can look into. <laughs> There's a lot there, right? Eh? There's a lot there. There's still many unanswered questions regarding these mysterious particles, mm-hmm. but that's, that's this year's Nobel Prize in Physics. Cool. Because neutrinos can change what type of neutrino they are just by traveling. Okay, so now it's time for the abstracts. One quick little headline from each of us about something that we wanted to talk about but didn't have time to do a full story on. Lucas? A supercomputer at the Beth Israel Medical Center in Boston can use your test results combined with data from about a quarter of a million previous patients Mm -hmm. to predict if you will die in the next 30 days. It can do this with 96% confidence. What? <laughs> it's 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 just a really good computer that can mine a lot of data, can take your vital signs, holy medical history that you can input to it. Yeah. And yeah, it can That is terrifying. With pretty good accuracy if you're going to die in the next 30 days. I feel like like the next big job that is going to be lost to computers is medicine. Like I think doctors in in a lot of ways, yes, in a lot of ways no though. Yeah. Like I mean, that computer can't do a lot of things the doctors can do. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, there's been a bunch of studies recently as to how computers are way more accurately able to determine whether somebody has cancer or look at a list of symptoms and guess the disease more effectively. Well, I mean, you're a doctor. You can't keep a quarter of a million patients in your mind. Oh, yeah. And regularly go to them. I mean, doctors learn by case study, Uh for sure. That's a huge part of medical learning. Mm -hmm. But, But if you have a quarter of a million case studies... Yeah, that's great. You're just you just yeah. step up. Wow. Yeah, 96% okay. confidence. That's amazing. Thanks. Yeah. So a new study out of Germany has indicated that your birth month might affect your risk of developing dementia later in life. Hmm. Uh, what they found was that summer-born babies were actually more likely to develop dementia early compared to winter-born babies. More likely to develop it earlier. Yes. Because usually your summer-born babies are at some sort of advantage because they, you know, eat more fresh vegetables or whatever. <laughs> no, the babies born in the winter actually seemed to do a little bit better. Uh, one of the theories that they had was that the babies that seemed to have the lowest risk for dementia later in life were ones born from January to February. Mm-hmm. And so they theorized that those babies had the longest time to mature before they had to go through a full winter 
out of the hospital and home where they were more likely to contract disease, which mm. causes inflammation, which tends to increase your risk of dementia. Interesting. Crazy yeah. that it can have an effect that early on. I know. It's kind of frightening. Ooh, it is. I said that earlier, baby. Catch. Babies don't eat vegetables. They don't eat vegetables. Babies don't eat vegetables. Okay, so we've talked before about a relatively infamous study about changing your mind, which you might recall. Yes. Um, You did the story Mm -hmm. a couple months ago about the whole controversy around that incredible unlikelihood of changing your mind episode of. Yeah, that was Radio Lab, right? Uh, this American Life. Oh, that was This American yeah, Life. This American Life. Yeah, um, yeah, and and that was a study where they were looking at people changing their minds about gay marriage, wasn't yes, it? Yes, exactly. Yeah, uh, and everyone got really excited for a bit because they thought they'd figured out a way to change people's minds about this issue, and then it turned out, oh, maybe the study was bogus and blah blah blah. Yeah. So <laughs> it was an interesting recent example of this. Mm-hmm. And what's cool is that something kind of similar has popped up again, only this time, fingers crossed, it looks legit. Oh, hopefully. Yeah. So this time it's about changing people's minds on the importance of vaccinating their children. Oh, a very important one. Really, really, really important. Yeah. Um, As you know, the reemergence of a ton of diseases has been clearly linked to the anti-vaccination movement Mm -hmm. where parents refuse to vaccinate their kids. Uh, In the year 2000, we thought that we'd eradicated measles from North America and Last year, there were 644 cases, and there was that outbreak at Disneyland. Oh, I didn't hear about that. Yeah, there was a huge outbreak at Disneyland. <laughs> it's it, it's crazy. We thought that these diseases were gone, and now they're yeah. starting to come back because mm. people aren't vaccinating their kids. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, at best, that tendency to not vaccinate is due to fears that we don't know the long-term implications of vaccines or misunderstanding the process. But at worst, it's it's this belief that vaccines cause autism the whole jenny mccarthy thing which is completely completely untrue yeah i'm sure if you're listening to this you already know that but i still feel the need to state that it's (laughs) not remotely correlated whatsoever unrelated a new study out of the university of california has actually found a way to make vaccine skeptics more likely to vaccinate their kids okay yeah i'm curious so for this study they interviewed 315 parents about their views on vaccinations and they actually created this vaccine attitude index, okay, which involved parents describing their views through how much they believed in certain statements regarding mm-hmm. vaccines, yeah. including ones like the risk of side effects outweighs any potential benefits for vaccines, or I plan to vaccinate my children, or a number mm-hmm. of other ones. Yeah. So through answering these questions, they were able to get an idea of how these people felt towards vaccines. And then when they put that data up against the questions that had been asked about what the parents had actually done, whether they'd actually vaccinated their kids in the past mm-hmm. or whether they planned to, they found that it was pretty accurate. Oh, okay. Um, which is good. a good indicator good sign, of their, sure. their index that they're using as a basis for the study. Yeah. They then split these parents into three different groups, a control group, obviously mm-hmm. a group called the disease risk group okay. and a group called the autism correction group. <laughs> okay. I, all right. What yeah. does that mean? So, The control group, to start, was given a completely unrelated little vignette about uh, bird feeding. Sure. So it was a sort of scientific analysis of it, and it was relatively uninteresting. 
mm-hmm. compared to the topic of vaccines. Vaccines in this case, it yeah. wasn't really related, just control group. Yeah. The other two groups are the interesting ones. So the disease risk group read three things that were taken from the CDC website. Okay. Uh, a paragraph written from a mother's perspective about her child contracting measles. Mm-hmm. A picture of a child with measles, a child with mumps, and a baby with rubella. Okay. And three little warnings about how important it is for people to vaccinate their children. Yeah. The autism correction group read recent research showing that vaccines do not increase the risk of autism in children. Right. And that was also taken from the CDC website. So those were all geared towards a general audience. Yeah. Okay. So the the real idea behind this study was that mostly what we try and do to combat the ignorance of people believing that vaccines cause autism Mm -hmm. is tell them that vaccines don't cause autism. That's usually the go-to. Yeah. Right. If you're talking to somebody and they say, Oh, vaccines cause autism. Our knee jerk reaction is to go, no, No. they don't. You're wrong. But that doesn't work. That doesn't work. And they theorized that giving that sort of response, put people into an argumentative state and cause them to dig in their heels more. Totally. They wanted to find out whether that was true and whether there was a better way. Sure. So that was the idea behind this disease risk group is what they were trying to do is create a positive reason to vaccinate Mm -hmm. as opposed to a negative reason not to vaccinate. And that's using a double negative there. But the idea is that saying vaccines don't cause autism Mm -hmm. is not actually giving you reason to vaccinate. It's just saying that they don't do something negative. Oh, okay. But that doesn't create any positive connection that stays in someone's brain. Right. So, what were the results of this study? Mm -hmm. They saw a significant number of the participants against vaccines change their minds from the disease risk group. Whereas, Mm -hmm. as predicted, the autism and the control groups were relatively unaffected. Interesting. The parents who were the most against vaccines at the beginning actually had the strongest change. Really? Yeah. So the most skeptical parents at the beginning of the study had the oh. most dramatic shifts in their beliefs towards the end, but only from the disease risk group, the ones who were given an enticing reason to vaccinate as opposed to the autism is not caused by vaccines reason to not not vaccinate. Is there any thought of why that might be? Are these just people who are prone to extreme opinions? Well, that's not really understood because that wasn't the focus yeah, of the study. Totally. In this case, it was just how do we get them to change their minds? Not why why is this going on Mm -hmm. i think really what can be understood there is that we're so far removed now from the diseases that cause these vaccines to be developed in the first place Mm -hmm. or at least we thought we were right that it's not a clear and present issue right our parents generation grew up hearing and seeing evidence of polio and rubella and mumps all over the place Mm -hmm. and we just didn't and the fact is a lot of these parents are of a generation where they just didn't grow up seeing that stuff. So it's not, yeah. it's not a clear and present issue. And funnily enough, just showing them the reasons why we're vaccinating does the trick is enough, huh. which is pretty amazing. That is kind of cool. Yeah. So uh, they, I mean, they'd also hypothesized that the autism control group would dig their feet in more that, you know, mm-hmm. argumentative. Yeah. No, turning it into a, a big did, thing. Did they see that? They didn't. Okay, so uh, it was just no change at all. There was just through. really no significant change. Okay. Yeah. So it was uh, generally a pretty successful study. And yeah. they're going to actually do some more research, hopefully in the near future, about more effective ways to get people to change their minds on issues. That's awesome. Yeah. So next time you find somebody who 
is an anti-vaxxer, you can try and sell them on the reasons why vaccination is really important yeah. instead of telling them they're crazy. Well, that's all for this week. We've got links to all the studies we discussed and links to more information uh, in this episode's show notes. Those are at doubleblindscience.com. We hope you've enjoyed our adventure into this week's science news. Check back next week. We'll have two new and exciting stories for you. If you've seen something in the news you'd like us to cover, we've got some great tips recently, which are going to lead to some cool stories in the near future. Send them on over. uh, Stories at doubleblindscience.com. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at, at DoubleBlindSci. It's never not an awkward way to say it. Thanks. See you next week. See ya.